Bibles tonight and would like to turn to Revelation chapter 1 again. Last week we began with the introduction to this amazing book of Revelation. And if you can just bear with me here in these first at least two weeks really, I guess we won't need to do this as much when we head into chapter 2 and following, but just grant me a longer you know, kind of introduction as we try to set this book up so we're not missing anything, but we began last week with the introduction in the first uh, seven or first eight verses uh, that proclaim the sure and eminent victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over the world, over evil, and over Satan himself. However, John's introduction isn't just one of proclamation, it's strategic, it's very strategic. There were principles in the text that show us what God intends to reveal to the eyes of our hearts. One of the the books that's very helpful to me, Dennis Johnson, he identifies seven principles for reading Revelation that come from the text, from that introduction, and will help guide our interpretation as they were intended to as we go through the book. The first is that Revelation is given to reveal. Don't forget this. Blessings were pronounced in verse 3 to those who read and hear and keep the prophetic words in the book, which means God intends to make its message clear to those who are seeking it. The first readers, remember, they would not have had the benefit of flipping pages back and forth, checking cross-references, consulting concordances, consulting commentaries. They couldn't do that. That wasn't even accessible for them, meaning all of that must not be necessary to hear its message, understand it, or take it to heart in order to keep it. We act like if you don't have a stack of charts and tables and graphs and you can't understand Revelation. Beloved, that's not the case. You don't need, we do not need, special prophetic insight or somebody's TV ministry tracking everything that happens in the world for us. You don't have to be really good with numbers. You don't have to be really good with politics to understand Revelation, it is not meant to deepen our confusion or encourage speculation. It's meant to reveal. Secondly, Revelation is a book to be seen. The verb saw is so pervasive in Revelation. The verb occurs over 52 times with John as the subject that it might become easy to overlook. It's there so much. But verse 1 shows us that that sets the tone, that idea of this being seen for the entire Book Verse 1 shows us we can't ignore the fact that this was seen. What John has seen in prophetic visions or vision is the true character of events and individuals and forces and trends through symbols. God shows John the way things actually are, have been, and will be. The appearance of which is very different, though, on the visible plane, on or with what we can see. But one of the key themes of the book is that things are not what they seem. So what is visible to us is not what it appears to be. So Revelation uses symbols to make things appear to us, to believers, as they actually are. The book uses uh, paradoxical imagery to show the true identity of the church, the true appearance and identity of its enemies and its victor. And this paradox is that the images that appear here are opposite in Revelation of how they appear in the world. We 
talked about the meaning of the phrase to show last week in verse 1 that tells us from the outset the book needs to be read primarily as symbolic. And by nature, symbolism is ambiguous, which helps explain why there are so many interpretations of Revelation. If we are to use um, a literal where possible mode of interpretation, then that's going to raise more questions than it solves because they're symbols. And so, uh, you know, John didn't see Tomahawk cruise missiles or or Black Hawk Black Hawk choppers and, and call them locusts. John saw locusts, right? That's what we see. Those are symbols. And so if we use this, it's literal all the time. It's going to be a liability for us. Again, when I say that, I'm not trying to play fast and loose with God's word. I don't mean there are things in the book that aren't true. Everything in the book of Revelation is literally true. What we need to understand to interpret it correctly is how these things are true. Why did God communicate through symbols? That's what we want to understand. When many interpreters, not all of them, but when, uh, when many interpreters of Revelation in particular use the word literal, what they mean is they're using it to signify that the image in the prophet's vision corresponds directly physically to what it's referring to in history. So, for example, when God promises a regathering of Israel in the land, that promise must be fulfilled in a literal resettlement of the physical descendants of the patriarchs in the physical land between the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Or when God promises a rebuilt temple, this promise couldn't possibly be fulfilled. If that's how you're reading prophetic imagery, that promise couldn't possibly be fulfilled as the Bible says it is, as a spiritual house constructed of living stones who are people. They are the stones, the brick and mortar of the building in First Peter 2.5. Now, if you're reading everything like with that literal sense, it has to be an actual brick and mortar temple. It doesn't make the text any less true, any less authoritative. We need to understand how things are written and why they are written the way they are. But using the word literal not only unintentionally downplays so much of how the New Testament teaches us, we don't keep consistent with that hermeneutic, right? Nobody does. You know, all, you hear this all the time. We, we're always moving away from literalism while saying that we're, you know, because we get scared. Because if you say it isn't literal, we automatically think, well, that's a liberal interpretation. We're not going to take the Word of God seriously. Beloved, that's not what we mean at all. We, we, you do this all the time even when it's not symbolic language, right? And when Jesus is talking about disciples, if he doesn't mean you should literally hate, you know, that's not what he meant. Well, the word is hate. The word means hate. So we do this a lot. That just, just don't, when you hear, when you hear me saying that, your pastor saying that, please don't think I mean that something in the text isn't true or that we can make the word of God say whatever we want to say. That's not what I'm going after at all. I cannot stress this enough to you, beloved, even if we end up disagreeing over the finer points in the book. Beloved, the word of God is perfect. We have got to understand the genre of revelation in order to understand revelation or we'll just do all kinds of things with it. You, you shouldn't be able to have a TV series, for example, on Revelation. It's not that complex. And I know that sounds crazy to say, but everybody you meet says that the book is so hard and so confusing. And, 
But what if we read it as it was written to us rather than reading into it what we already think about the end times, right? That's, that's when we get into trouble no matter what view we take of interpreting the book. So the literal meaning of a piece of language depends on what type of language it is, right? The literal meaning of a piece of language depends on what kind of language it is. That's poetry, right? If, if I say to my wife something like Solomon said in the Song of Solomon, I don't literally mean that her neck is like a flock of goats, right? I, I, why? Because that's the genre. No, no lady wants to hear that. You know, oh, I, cool. I've seen flocks of goats. Beauty is not what comes to my mind, right? So just remember, genre is very, very important. And it's like we come into Revelation and we're just so amped to find out how it's going to end that we toss that idea out altogether. And now we just completely forget. Vern Poitras uh, talks about this when he says that the literal meaning of symbolic language, what it literally means, is the symbolic correspondence between the imagery of the language and the referent it describes. That's how it's literal, right? What is it describing? It's describing what it literally means, what it's trying to show us. That's how we understand symbols. Remember that, right? And Revelation 1.1 tells us this is largely a book of symbols. And so how do we understand symbols? What are they trying to show us? That's what the literal meaning of a symbol is. The signals all throughout Revelation make it very clear that visionary symbolism is the dominant feature of the book, especially as you get into chapter 4 and following, where the deepest parts of Revelation come out. So the interpretive rule of thumb for us is that we should take what John sees as symbolic whenever that's possible and understand it that way. The, the third principle, maybe the most important, is that Revelation makes sense only in light of the Old Testament. This is what these people would have been taught. This was the Bible they did have or had copies of or the Hebrew Scriptures. Revelation is the climax, the capstone of biblical prophecy. Although Revelation doesn't quote the Old Testament directly very much, allusions to the Old Testament are everywhere in the book. It is just chock full of allusions to the Old Testament. The allusions, you, you'll, if you know your Old Testament well, you'll pick up on them when you hear them, but even they have been put into new configurations, right? Why? How we understand the Old Testament. Why? since the death and resurrection of the Lamb have brought the warfare of the ages to a new phase and to a new landscape. Something has happened by the time the New Testament is written that hadn't happened when the Old Testament was. Fourthly, numbers count in Revelation. It uses significant numbers to signal. You can signal the structure of John's visions to both the congregation who heard it first uh, and to represent important concepts for all time for the church. Um, seven, ten, twelve, and some of their multiples um, in particular are very important. One commentator says that when we recognize the symbolic si significance of numbers and the flexibility of numerical symbolism in Revelation, we'll understand what the numbers are intended to convey without pressing for a literal connection between the numerical measurements in the vision and what they refer to in real time and history. We need to understand how numbers are used often in Scripture. Fifthly, Revelation is for a church under attack. 
in many of the blessings pronounced in the book, we'll hear hints of just how the enemy attacks the church, the various forms of attack that are being launched against the church all the time. Namely, persecution that leads to martyrdom and seduction, if you will, that leads to the church's defilement. Those seem to be the major strategies of the enemy. It talks often then in Revelation of the church or of Christians overcoming, right? We see that a lot. And we learn that the form overcoming takes in each church is relative to what attack of the enemy that church is dealing with in the moment, in the present time, the particular challenge facing them. As the church today, as a lampstand today, the American church in America, we need to know and be aware of the particular challenges America and the dark forces ruling over America are bringing to bear or presenting to the church. We need to know how we, specifically in America, are being attacked. It's not the same as Christians in North Korea, for example, or in Somalia, for example, or Pakistan are being attacked by the enemy. Beloved, America is of the world. It is not of heaven. It's not a heavenly nation. Don't fall asleep in the light. We can simultaneously believe that this is the greatest country in the world. Fine. I I don't dispute that. It's America is wonderful. But beloved, that being said, it's a worldly kingdom. It will fall under God's judgment. Don't forget this. Don't fall asleep in the light that we have here. The dragon's ongoing assault on the church comes in different forms and from different quarters and from different times and places. In some parts of the world, the attack of the enemy of the beast comes head-on through the persecuting violence of hostile governments or, or even hostile neighbors. In other places, the dangers the enemy presents to the church are a little more insidious, like a, um, I read it, like a slow infection that numbs the church's discernment of error, right, and weakens its immune system, so to speak as has been happening in America in particular, I think, for a very long time. In still other places and for other churches, the dragon's weapon is the encouragement to compromise, right? To enjoy compromise. It has its advantages. It's much easier. The point being, always and in every place, the church of Jesus Christ is always under attack in the world. Right now, the devil is bound in the sense that he cannot mount the nations together for an all-out assault against the church to end the church, that day will come. He will be let loose to do that. But if we are to be safe as the church, as believers, we not only need to see what the enemy is doing, we need to make sure we're holding fast to Christ our victor, which is what the text in part is trying to do for us or help us do tonight. Sixthly, Revelation concerns what must soon take place. We read that last week, what must soon take place. So we read that right out of the gate. So just so we don't assume that some long delay or parentheses lies unseen behind the scenes that you can't really track the time of between John's receiving of the visions and the events they symbolize, the book of Revelation will remind you that it's primarily a letter to seven churches and it will circle back and say this exact same thing at the end of the letter in the last chapter in Revelation 22, 6 and 7. It, it even speaks of it with greater clarity. Listen, and he said to me, this is in Revelation 22, 6 and 7, the very last chapter of the book. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true 
And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent this angel to show his servants what must soon take place. We read that in chapter 1. He's saying it again. He's stressing it. In other words, he doesn't go back on it at the end and say, Now, everything I've said has to deal for thousands of years after you guys are dead and gone and has no bearing on you whatsoever. He's, he's going back and saying, listen, this is meant to be read as urgent in every time and every age of the church, no matter when they are, where they are, or when they're reading it. We're meant to read it literally there because there's no reason to call that symbolic. Soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Jesus has been coming soon since the first century, beloved. Coming soon. Well, who gets to define soon? God does. He is the author of time. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It, it's telling you, look, I'm, I'm wrapping this up for the churches to whom I'm writing. So you and I have to give proper weight to something, to a principle in how we seek to interpret Revelation. And that is the fact that Revelation gave insight into the purposes of God to first century Christians in their time. Not that everything in it is in the past. That's not what I mean. What I mean is everything in it was relevant for the churches who got the letter. So at the very least then, if that's true, and it is true as the Word of God tells us it is, if our interpretations of Revelation go completely beyond the original audience's frame of reference, those interpretations are immediately suspect. Don't forget that. If, if this goes way beyond what they would have understood to hear and to keep, that interpretation of Revelation needs to be very suspect in our minds. If we remember, however, that God intended first century believers to get the whole message of Revelation, then we'll read its visions primarily against the backdrop of the prophecy already in the Bible in Old Testament imagery instead of forcing into Revelation 21st century now technologies or politics for all these or all these theories and speculation it never stops and we keep doing it touched on it a little bit last week how, how many of you can remember in 1987 or so the book or, or maybe early, a little earlier in the 80s the book that came out the pamphlet from Billy Graham's ministries I'm not saying anything about Billy Graham that's not my point 88 reasons Jesus is returning in 1988 Oops, right? That was, what, 30 years ago? So, it, in other words, you can't, we can't do that. Revelation is not here to help us do that. If you really get in between the lines and study, you'll, you'll figure out when all this is going to happen. No, you won't. That's not why it's written. That's not why it's written. You came up with 88 reasons and they were all wrong. And those are not dumb men. I'm not implying that at all. Those were not stupid teachers. They were not unchristian. They were not heretics. They believed what they wrote. They used the word of God to reach their conclusions. But they were horribly incorrect. And every time something happens, it's like, oh man, this is it. This is it. Beloved, it's always been it. Soon take place. So just remember this. As we read, finally, the seventh interpretive principle guiding our study of Revelation that's been revealed to us in the introduction is this. The victory belongs to God and to His Christ. Worship is a massive motif or part of Revelation. But it, that worship specifically centers around 
God's redemptive triumph through the Lamb over the enemies that have threatened His church and deny His supremacy and His worthiness. The first vision John sees in the letter that we look at tonight is of the Son of Man. It's of the Lion and the Lamb Himself tonight in verses 9-20. through And this, beloved, this is the most vivid descriptive, captivating portrayal of Jesus that we have anywhere in the Word of God. This is amazing. Many artists have tried and done a wonderful job in some of these paintings to capture this revelation of Jesus, but the purpose of it is not to tell us what Jesus looks like. That that isn't what this is doing. This is designed to show us something about His nature and character, and who He is, and what He's done, and will do. This is who Jesus is spiritually, morally. The symbols are here to portray this to us. So rather than trying to pick apart all the pieces, what's really intended is that we just stand in awe of the whole. That when we see it as the Spirit gives us the ability that it does to us what it did to John, it just bowls you over. It's a beautiful picture of the one who is reigning. We like to tell kids, and we should always tell kids, don't stare at the sun. Right? Don't stare at the sun. You tell them that all the time. It's too awesome. It's too bright. Well, the picture of Jesus tonight is meant to elicit that same overwhelming idea of glory, but John wants us to stare at it. Right? Let it burn your eyes. Let it take over your vision. Why? Why do we need at the outset of Revelation to stand in awe of Jesus? What is the purpose of that? How is that relevant? Beloved, do you remember 2 Corinthians 3.18? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Just right after this in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul reveals that we behold the glory of God now, When we see the face of Jesus Christ as He is revealed to us in the Gospel, we see the glory when we hear it, right? We will become like what we behold. Beloved, we will become like what we behold and savor and stare at and fixate on. And focusing our eyes on Jesus transforms us. That's what's happening at the outset of Revelation. That's why John has given us this portrait right out of the gate before we even get into the difficult things of the Savior. G.K. Beale says that John was given this revelation of Jesus to remind the churches that their confidence is grounded in the exaltation of Christ as the cosmic judge, priest, and ruler of the church as a direct result of his victory over death. So, beloved, tonight, the church in every age has been given this exalted picture of the glorified Christ to transform us, to transform us so that we might endure and overcome in these last days, no matter what the enemy does to us. Our greatest need, beloved, is not financial advice. It's actually not marital counsel, it's not practical steps for daily living. Our greatest need as Christians here and now, in our church, in this time, in this place, is to behold Jesus Christ. 
So John reveals to us the glory that he himself saw. I appreciate your patience for all that before we head into this text. I want to go as quickly as I can tonight, but let me pray and we'll head into this passage. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for revealing the glory of your Son to us. And God, I'm asking you tonight, I'm begging you to let us all see it. Lord, let us get a glimpse of what John saw. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 9 of Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The Isle of Patmos was a small island. It was about six miles wide, 10 miles long in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles west of Asia Minor where these seven churches are. 65 miles from the nearest city, which was Ephesus, in fact, to which John wrote. John was not vacationing on the island of Patmos when he received this vision. He had been exiled there. He's suffering for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's very instructive. He is what he's writing about. He was there because he had endured and would not compromise the word and testimony of Jesus. And exile is what it got him. After John had been boiled in oil and survived, they sent him to Patmos to die there on his own. He identifies himself with the readers and with Jesus as both he and they are those who reign right now in the initial form of the kingdom. How do they reign? By enduring through tribulation. So John is a partner with the church in this. He's not an exception. He's not writing from an ivory tower. He's writing as a sufferer, soon to be a martyr. He will die of natural causes, but as a result of his Exile. Both he and the churches here are identified with Jesus. John and his community are people who reign even now. How are they reigning? It sure doesn't look like it. That's not how we determine whether or not we are reigning or Jesus is reigning. You do not determine it by how things look, beloved. We reign even now together in the kingdom of Jesus, How? which means that faithful endurance through tribulation is how one reigns even in the present with Jesus, and of course it will be consummated and come in fullness at the end. But beloved, to endure as a Christian in Revelation is to remain faithful through persecution and to reject false teaching. Okay? John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. At the very least, in the Spirit means he was so deeply engaged with God that everything else has been shut out. That That's when he has this vision that God gives to him. The text doesn't tell us that John arrived at the place of being in the Spirit, like there's a process to that or steps to that. We can't make this happen. Again, at the very least, it means for us that we should simply stay in a place of readiness for God to speak to us through His Word or with His Word. John is beginning to describe his commission to write what he saw. This is how it started. When Paul was given a vision of heaven that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians, he was commanded not to share what he saw. John is commanded to, sh- to, to do the exact opposite of that, to share it indeed so that everybody can read it and see it. John has been entrusted with testifying to this heavenly revelation of Jesus because John has been faithful in witnessing to the earthly revelation of Jesus. That's him in verse 2 and verse 9. He's, he wants to remind us 
of this. John is not only a witness to the testimony of Jesus for the churches in Asia Minor, but by the Holy Spirit who gave us this book to the church in every age. That's why the Revelation is a written record. Apparently, we didn't need to know what Paul saw. We need to know what John saw. So that he's written this down, do you realize, so that we can behold this vision if we want to every single day. We can see what John saw by reading the word every single day. Just, beloved, the written word is not like a secondary way of beholding the glory of the Lord. Like there's a different plane of spirituality you can reach where you're really in his presence or really in his glory. Beloved, the written word, is, it, it's not secondary. It's not like, well, yeah, I mean, I could read the Bible. But, beloved, it, it's the word of God is supreme. The introduction of this commission uses the language of Ezekiel. Right, that the Old Testament prophet, as it spoke of him repeatedly being in the Spirit, giving John's revelation the same prophetic authority as the Old Testament prophets. The, we read about the sound of trumpets. The trumpet recalls the voice that Moses heard on Sinai. That's how it is described. The charge to write things down in a book reflects the charge given by God to his Old Testament prophets so that they could communicate to Israel the revelation they had Received, And if you remember, by the way, all these commissions in the Old Testament prophets were to write testaments of judgment against Israel. That's what the words here evoke. The remember that, that normally when we read these phrases, it was speaking of a proclamation of judgment against Israel. So even early in this book, it's already hinting that one of its primary points of focus will be judgment, but not only of the world but those in the church that claim the name of Christ and compromise with the world. The text doesn't give us any reason. The text does not give us any reason for the order in which the different churches are addressed. Some have suggested that the order points to actually the successive ages of the church age after John. So those seven letters are seven periods of time that the church will endure before the end. So the spiritual condition of the seven churches prophetically represents seven successive stages in church history. Here's the problem with that, right? Because we, we've done this a lot. Well, that church kind of sounds like uh, what the Catholics are doing. And so that must be that a that church represents that age. What in the text tells you that? How does that come from the text? In other words, don't say... Literal and then say that's act that means like a period and no be consistent, right? There's no indication in the text that there's a prophetic intention to the order and the names of the churches, and church history wouldn't validate any such pattern at all. You 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 couldn't hold to it over time. It just doesn't work. What's more likely is that by writing to seven churches. It refers both to these churches and the whole church everywhere and all the time with the number seven. The conclusion of each letter, if you'll notice, extends its application to all churches, to all Christians. We all need to hear those applications. So what we find in the letters to these seven churches is potentially relevant for the church in every time and every place. At any time, a church could be struggling with one or more of the issues in these seven letters, from a practical viewpoint, these seven cities formed a very nice, natural route of communication in Asia Minor that had made them even to the world significant centers 
like for mail distribution and letters at that time. So the churches in these cities would naturally have become very important centers for communication between Christians and churches. This fact might have made these seven churches the leading churches in that region, which is why John may have addressed seven letters specifically to them. There were way more than these seven churches in Asia Minor, beloved. So we pick up now as he sees in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? You, wasn't it amazing how you could hear it approaching it? Just utterly amazing. That's what the voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys." Presently of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Right out of the gate, by the way, he proves verse 1. Right? He proves verse 1. Stars and lampstands mean angels and churches. All right, that, that's how you read Revelation. So this is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. The, the first thing John was aware of was not a sight, but a sound. The loud voice like a trumpet behind him. A voice he compares in verse 15 with the roar of many waters. That description of the voice he heard recalls Ezekiel's description of the sound of the wings on the creatures who bore God's throne in Ezekiel 1.24. Meaning then, Jesus' voice is the voice of Almighty God. John turns to see who is speaking and it overwhelms him. He sees seven golden lampstands and one like a son of man among them. One like a son of man, a human being among them. Jesus is in the midst of these lampstands which will later be described in verses 11 and 12 and 20 as symbols for the Asian churches. Jesus is not just sovereign over the church. He is present in and among the church. He is among us right now. We are a lampstand in the Ohio Valley. Notice the order, however, of the vision. Before we see the speaker, we see where he is standing. In the midst of of the lampstands. Jesus is present with the churches. That's the first part of the revelation John sees. He is present with the churches. That phrase describing him as one like a son of man is taken directly from the vision in Daniel chapter 7, which has already been recalled. We're already meant to be looking there in Revelation 1 7 with this announcement that Jesus is coming with the clouds. This is 
Daniel 7. Daniel was given a vision in the night in the first year of Belshazzar's reign that will be a gold mine in Revelation for John's imagery of Jesus. Daniel saw the heavenly court of the Ancient of Days, radiant with purity and glory. And in Daniel, it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. When he came up, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. So just remember that. In Daniel 7, Jesus is not returning. He's ascending. Very important. The one who commissions John to write what he sees in a book received the eternal kingdom on behalf of the saints from the ancient of days when he ascended to him. Beloved, notice how the descriptions of the one speaking then are drawn from different scriptures and even from different figures within the same prophetic vision are all being brought together here with this language to describe the Son of Man. He wears a robe that stretches down to his feet and a sash like the ancient high priest in the tabernacle from Exodus 28 and 29, the one who consecrates God's kingdom of priests from all nations, then is the high priest who represents his church directly before the Father. We also see a resemblance to the angelic scribe in Ezekiel's vision from Ezekiel chapter 9 in that floor-length robe that God commands to mark his faithful people before judgment sweeps through the city. This one is fit to stand and defend the righteous, John is saying. Johnson says that his golden sash, flaming eyes, glowing feet, and radiant face all reflect the splendor of the man who appeared to Daniel sent by God to reveal the future destiny of the people of God in Daniel 10, 5 through 21. Heavenly messengers always shine with the glory of God who sent them from his own heavenly court, which of course is filled with his light. The face of the Son of Man, however, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This, this is glory too blazing to look at. And John says... The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. He doesn't have the words for this level of whiteness. So it's it's like white, like wool, like snow, right? This also comes from Daniel 7, verse 9. But there, the one whose hair was white, like pure wool, was not the Son of Man, but the Ancient of Days, the Father. The white hair of the Son of Man here then is not just a reflection of God's glory as all messengers from heaven are reflections of His glory to some extent. With the same vocabulary provided by Daniel's vision, we understand that John sees one who is distinguished from and identified with the Ancient of Days, God the Father. No wonder then in this text, the one standing in the midst of the lampstands lays claim to the title, the first And the last, down in verse 17, by which God proclaims His divine eternity. The Son of Man is God, infinite in wisdom and holiness. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That speaks to His all-seeing, penetrating intelligence, His awareness of everything, His power to read secrets, to bring hidden things to light, to warm our hearts, to search our hearts. This is the look Jesus looks at us with. Eyes like flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. 
in verse 15, that probably references his just stunning moral purity. In other words, his feet are also clean. Nobody's feet were clean in this culture. His feet are so clean, they're like bronze refined in a furnace. He is pure and clean. In his right hand, in verse 16, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In Isaiah 49, verse 2, the servant, God's servant, says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. The spoken word of God will conquer everything that opposes God's rightful king. With the word of his mouth, he will put an end to evil. And all this great cosmic conflict happening even in the invisible realm, beloved, that you and I can't see. The Son of Man is a warrior. The Son of Man is a judge. Jesus fulfills the two main reasons for which Israel first wanted a king back in 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20, that they would be like all the nations and that he may judge them and go out and fight their battles. Saul, their first king, failed to demonstrate either justice or courage in battle, really. David exemplified the king as a warrior. Solomon, his son, was a wise judge, wiser than any other ruler of men. But David and everyone in his line fell short of David's own description of the perfect ruler. David's description of it in 2 Samuel 23, 1-7, everyone in his line fell short of it until Jesus, the Son of Man, came. The one who is supremely wise in judgment and indescribably fierce in battle. When Jesus revealed himself to John, he did so here in prophetic symbolism, not in a literal description of his glorified resurrection body where he sits now at God's right hand. Right? In other words, I say that we're not meant to think that Jesus has a sword for a tongue or snow white hair, etc., etc. Again, the point here is not what Jesus looks like. The point here is what Jesus is like. He's the searcher of hearts. He is filled with consuming holiness and limitless wisdom. He is the perfect high priest for his people, standing before the Father. He's the perfect king, defending us against the devil by his invincible word. Beloved, Revelation will often show us how things are, not how they look to our eyes. Jesus in all his glory is devastating to John in verses 17 and 18. Look at this. He writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He fell down like he was dead. There's a similar reaction by Daniel back in Daniel chapter 10. Isaiah is undone by what he sees in Isaiah chapter 6. Paul fell to the ground before the blinding light in Acts chapter 9. John fell down as though he was dead. Remember something. This is the John that used to lean back on Jesus while he sat and talked with his disciples. It would lean on him. This is the glorified Christ. Beloved, this is our Christ. This is what the glory of Jesus would do to us if we saw it like it is. He would fall over like you were dead. So be very wary of those books where people that almost die just get to walk around heaven talking with Jesus like he's their buddy in like a cardigan or something. This is what he's like. This is what he's like, beloved. You, you, you can't do that. It's, it's not the way it works. Right? We, we, in other words, then we don't need to be frozen in our worship. 
I don't mean to imply that at all, but we do need to be mindful, beloved, of who we're worshiping so that it doesn't become a puppet show. Right? This is the glorified Christ we worship and stand before, beloved. Fear not. Fear not. John, you don't have to fear death because I died and I'm alive forevermore and have the keys of death in Hades. I have authority over the pit so you don't fear death. You don't have to be afraid. Not only is Jesus the first and the last, he's the living one. He died, literally, but now behold, he's alive forevermore. He lives forever and ever in Revelation 4 and 5. It is his life on which God's promises to us are founded, beloved, his eternal, indestructible life. For by his death and return to life, Jesus has acquired the keys of death and Hades. His humiliating defeat on the cross was actually his glorious victory over the devil. It just didn't look like it. Right? Remember that. Jesus Christ, the ever-living King, now holds the keys of death and the grave, which again solidifies the fact that the eternal dominion of Jesus, the Son of Man, that was shown to Daniel back in his visions, was given to him and occurred through his death and resurrection and his ascension The dominion and reign of Jesus is not waiting for the future to be true. He currently holds the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, in verse 19, Jesus says, write this down. Write what you have seen. My church needs to know that I'm reigning now, even if it looks like the opposite. Write down what you've seen, things that both are and are to take place after this. That's the paradigm for the structure and content of the whole book. John is instructed to write down the entire vision he sees in the first part of 19, which pertains to present realities in the second part of 19, which are meant to be understood as the beginning of the latter days that will conclude at the end of history in the last part or the verse 19 part C. So this is for my people, Jesus is saying. It's for my church whenever and wherever they are. Verse 20 is for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, John saw lampstands and stars. That's what he saw. Jesus tells him what they mean, what they represent. We have to love it when he does this. He just tells us this is that. That's extremely helpful. But the imagery of the lampstand comes again from ancient Israel's sanctuary. In Exodus 25, 31 to 37, in the outer chamber of the sanctuary, the holy place, there was a golden lampstand with seven flames on it that gave light to the priests who served the Lord there every single day. Here they symbolize the churches, lights, right, scattered across Asia Minor on the earth. And beloved, Jesus Christ is among them. He knows them. He knows their works. He knows their situation even more than they do since his eyes are like flaming fire. The image of the churches as lampstands, though, also signals to us what the church has been called to do. We are reflecting the light of God's glorious presence into the darkness on earth. These seven golden lampstands surrounding the Son of Man also correspond on earth to the seven lamps John will see in heaven In chapter 4, verse 5, those later lamps signify the Spirit's presence with the Father 
and call the churches to reflect that presence on earth in the places God has sent them. These letters will show them how to do that. It will show them how to do that. The stars Jesus is holding in his right hand here and in verse 16 are the angels of the seven churches. But who are these angels? What does that mean? Does each church have a a guardian angel? Uh, the, the, The key to identifying them is in the fact that the letters are not, the seven letters are not going to be addressed actually to the churches themselves, but to the angels of these churches. So, are these angels the carriers of the letters? Are the angels the, the human messengers that bring them to each church? It, it's not completely unplausible. The problem would be that um, if the angels are merely the messengers that deliver the book to the churches, why would Jesus address his encouragement and his rebukes to the carriers of the letter rather than to those churches, right? Are the angels the pastors of these churches? That's a nice thought, but... Again, that's that's plausible. It's a little more plausible than the other. But in every other place in Revelation, in, in Scripture really, at least the New Testament, the messengers are superhuman messengers. That word angel is evoking. And though Jesus usually addresses each angel as a single individual, in these seven letters there are also times he uses the plural form of you in addressing the angel of the churches. So I don't think we're meant to see these angels as literal angels as we have come to understand them, but as the churches themselves. I think that's what's happening here as they are seen from the perspective of Christ's control over them. He holds them in his right hand. They are his messengers. It, again, that, that may be hard to wrap our minds around, and I, I it is hard, but I think it would be even more difficult, more of a stretch to picture the angels to whom these letters are addressed as guilty of the sins and compromises listed in the letters. We don't read that of unfallen angels, that they sin. Scripture never gives us a reason to assume that unfallen angels are anything but holy. The flaws in these letters are not the flaws of angels as we understand them. The flaws in these letters are the flaws of the church on earth that are the messengers of the glorious gospel. The news from heaven, the glory of God in the New Testament. G.K. Beale adds that one reason he addresses the churches in the terms of, in the heavenly term of angels is also to remind them that there is already a dimension of their existence that is heavenly right now. Their real home is with God, not with the unbelieving earth dwellers for which there is very bad news In the rest of the book, the churches have heavenly help. They have heavenly protection in their struggle, like stars in the hand of Jesus, not to be conformed to the pagan world in which they live. And beloved, tonight, as we speak, this glorified and magnificent Savior holds Moundsville Baptist Church in his hand. The church in every age has been given this exalted picture of the glorified Christ to transform us so that we might endure and overcome in the last days. We need to see Jesus in all his glory, beloved, in order to navigate the days ahead. Tony, you talk so much about this glory in the gospel, and yet you also talk about how troubled the world is, how compromised the church may be. Why don't you, you, you give us more about what to do in light of that, beloved? I'm, look, uh, this is what you do about it. You behold the glory of Jesus. That's how you do it. 
That's how you fight compromise. That's how you endure. That's how you stay faithful. That's how you resist temptation. Beloved, you behold the glory of Jesus. This is what we need. This is all we need. I want to endure with you. I want to stand with you. And I'm going to need your help as much as you might need mine. All right? The days will get harder. I don't know if this is the end or not. I don't know. It sure looks like it, but it's always looked like it to the church because the church isn't at home here. And, and again, imagine telling a Nigerian believer right now that, oh, this isn't, that, that you're not really suffering yet, right? It's, it's not the end yet. Tell them that in North Korea. It's a whole different thing, right? America's been so stable and solid for so long. When things start to crumble, we think the whole world is falling apart. But that, that's because it's not usually been like that for us. But we need to see Jesus in all His glory to navigate these days, at least to our end. And He was not just theirs, these seven churches, as this glorious, exalted, glorified Christ. He's ours presently, right now, as this, tonight. Tonight. Right now. This is who He is. He's burning Blazing, glorious, right now. And He's in charge. The ruler of kings on earth. This is Him. This is Him. What do our best kings have? Gold chains and nice cars? Look at Him. Look at Him. This one loves you and me. We're fine. We're safe. This is our risen Savior. This inspired word was written down by John, and to read it is almost as good as being there. Almost. Beloved, if this is our glorified Christ, the question is, what would we fear then? What would we fear? What would you be afraid of if on the battlefield He was standing in front of you? Sam Storms asks, do we forget that His power is infinite? That all things are subject to Him? And that He is not only great, but He is good? Do we forget he inspires awe? He's honorable and dignified. He is strong and compassionate. He is just yet gracious. He is powerful but humble. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who roars from Zion fighting our battles. And he is the lamb who was led willingly and silently to the slaughter for his people. And beloved, as the all-sufficient Savior, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Who else could better represent us before the Father than the glorious one described in this text? You tell me, if we were to see Him now like this, if we could see Him, we would endure. And we do. That's the point of God's Word here. Look at Him. He's being revealed. Look at Him. If you push everything about Jesus' glory out into the future yet to be obtained, it's very disconcerting. I think that's one way eschatology does kind of fuel how we think as Christians. If we think all the reigning glory of Jesus is set for the future and isn't happening right now, it is pretty scary. Church, we live in the last days. The church always has. And he says to us, as he said to them, to them do not be afraid. You, you don't need to be. So endure. 
stand. Jesus Christ, your Jesus, says to us that he is the first and the last. The living one who died but is alive forevermore. And he has the keys of death and Hades. Everything we need and everything we desire is found only in the glorious Jesus who is our Savior. He's in control of our destiny. Those keys are his. Nobody else can unlock the pit and throw us into it but Jesus. And he has justified us and made us his own. We're safe. We will be transformed into the church we are called and have been sent to be to the degree that we behold and stand in awe of the glorified and risen Christ. All right? And so my primary responsibility as your preaching elder is to hold up the beauty and majesty of Jesus in the gospel for us to behold. This is the key, beloved, that opens the door for the church to be the church. So let us embrace it for the glory of our Savior and for the people of this beautiful Ohio Valley. All right? Amen. Amen.